Um, If you would, would you stand with me as we read from the Word of God? We're going to be reading um, from 1 Timothy. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12 and we're going to go through verse 20. Let me just make a comment before we start reading this. Um, Here's what the Apostle Paul is going to do in kind of these two passages, these two uh, chapters that we have. The first one, what he's going to do is he's just going to blow up the gospel for us. Like blow up in a good, blow up in a good way. Uh, he is going to make this thing so big. This is like literally it's one of the most amazing passages in all of scripture in our first few verses. And then the apostle Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to move into a section of scripture where he charges young Timothy with something. And then he works his way to the bottom where he warns the church. He gives a warning to the church of what happens to people inside of the church who reject this gospel. What happens to people inside the life of the church who teach a different gospel? That's what Paul's going to show us. He's going to give us two warnings from the text. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse 12. These are the words of Paul to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I heard one person say amen to that. Amen. That's why Jesus came. To save sinners. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he keeps going. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, listen to this. By rejecting this, by rejecting the gospel, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. On April 14th, 1912... One of the greatest tragedies in modern day history took place. This, there was a, a ship that was heralded as the largest movable object in the world. Several days before set sail, set sail from Southampton, England with the final destination of New York City. This largest object in the world, largest movable object in the world was known as The Titanic. And it was also heralded as the unsinkable ship. 
And so several days before April 14th, it leaves Southampton, England. It makes several stops along the coast. And then it begins its venture across the Atlantic Ocean. And just one day into its venture across the Atlantic, it begins receiving warnings from other ships and from other sea liners that are in close proximity to it. And this is what they say. They say, Titanic, you need to be careful because there's icebergs. You need to look. You need to be on guard. You need to watch out because there are icebergs. Captain of the Titanic goes and he looks out across the ocean. Two men go up to the crow's nest. They look out across the ocean. No icebergs. Full steam ahead. Several more days into the journey, on the night of April 14th at 10.50 p.m., the Titanic receives its final warning, and this is the warning it receives from a ship that's in close proximity to it. They radio in, they say, Titanic, you need to drop your anchor. We have dropped ours, and you need to drop yours too. There are icebergs everywhere. If you don't drop your anchor, you're going to shipwreck. You need to drop your anchor. You see, your anchor is your savior. Captain looks out across the ocean. No icebergs. The two men go up to the crow's nest, look out across the ocean. No icebergs. And we all know the story that less than an hour later, the Titanic collides with an iceberg. And several hours after that, 1,500 people lose their lives. It's said that had the captain of the ship heeded the warning, had the Titanic dropped its anchor, that the mighty Titanic would not have shipwrecked. You see, the unsinkable ship sank because it didn't heed the warning. You need to drop your anchor. Your anchor is your savior. The title of my message this morning is Anchored to the Gospel. Anchored to the Gospel. And here's the main point of the sermon. If you want to know what we're doing for the rest of our time, by God's grace, that everything is going to go back to this one point and this one idea. And it's this. Anchor yourself to the gospel or shipwreck your soul. Anchor yourself to the gospel or shipwreck your soul. You see, this is what Paul is saying in his text as he is writing to young Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, there is one thing that you need to anchor your soul to. There is one thing that is going to save you. You need to anchor your life to the gospel. The, 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 the apostle Paul tells Timothy, I have entrusted the gospel to you and you need to hold the faith. You need to hold tight to the gospel. Paul repeats this again in first Timothy six that he says, hold tight to the eternal life that you have been called to hold fast to the anchor because here's what's going to happen. This is the warning that he gives Timothy is that there are going to be people inside the life of the church. There are going to be people who walk through the doors of the church and they are going to proclaim a different gospel and they are going to tell you to anchor your life to it. And if you do that, Timothy, you will shipwreck your soul. Anchor yourself to the gospel or shipwreck your soul. If you were here um, a month ago, 
our brother Reese kicked off First Timothy for us. I have the next passage, I believe next week, that David has the passage after me. Um, but here's the background that we have in First Timothy. Here's what we know is that in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 18 and Acts 19, the Apostle Paul goes into the port city of Ephesus. This is a hustling and bustling city that's, that's right on the coast, uh, has this huge harbor with lots of ships that come in and out. They export and import and trade routes and lots of commerce. The Apostle Paul in Acts 18 and 19 goes into the city of Ephesus and boldly proclaims the gospel. And as he does that, there are many people who believe and they plant a church in the city of Ephesus. Well, Paul's aim is not to stay in one place. It's to move on to new places, boldly proclaim the gospel, make disciples, plant churches in new places. And so as the apostle Paul leaves, in his leaving, Paul and the elders of Ephesus appoint young Timothy, Paul's protege, Paul's disciple, the person who Paul has invested his entire life and ministry in, they appoint, they appoint young Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And here's what we know is happening in the life of the church in Ephesus. As the apostle Paul leaves, as young Timothy is now the pastor of this church, Paul tells us in our text today that there have been two shipwrecks. Not like physical shipwrecks, not like the Titanic that, that goes and it hits an iceberg. Though That would actually be way better. What Paul tells us is there have been two shipwrecks of the soul. You see, we found out from Reese's text that, that when Paul first starts his letter, he begins this letter by saying, hey, there's these uncertain persons in the life of the church. It says it a couple of different, there are these uncertain persons. We don't know really anything about them except that they are leaders in the church. Uh, there are these people who, um, uh, some people think that they were elders. In fact, almost every commentary that I read this week said, believe that these men were elders in the church. Some people believe they were deacons. Some people believe they were Sunday school teachers. Some people believe that they were small group leaders. We don't really know. All we know is that there are these uncertain persons, these leaders in the church who have the ears of the congregation. That, that they're teaching these things and everyone in the church is listening to them. Paul goes on and he says, hey, these are the things that they're teaching. Um, they're teaching these myths, or the word that, that, that Reese pulled out is that they're teaching these fables. Uh, they're teaching these stories. And, and, and what they're doing is, um, to the average person in the life of the church, that as they're preaching these stories, as they're teaching these stories, that to the average person, they sound right, but they ain't right. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, hey, they're, they're teaching these genealogies, these things that have been passed down from one generation to the next. And to the average person, to the average churchgoer, they sound right. Listen, but they ain't right. He, he says there's these uncertain persons. What they're doing is there's these cultural ideas that exist outside of the church. And these uncertain persons have brought them inside of the church. And to the average churchgoer, they sound right. But they ain't right. And the Apostle Paul moves on from there and he, he moves away from calling them these uncertain persons to where we arrive in our text today. And he actually calls these guys out by name and he says, this is who they are, Hymenaeus and Alexander. You want to know who these leaders are in the church that are teaching these things that sound right, but they're not right? It's Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul goes on in our text to say he's not only teaching these things. Hymenaeus and Alexander are not only teaching these false gospels and this unsound doctrine, 
that what they're doing is they've actually rejected the gospel altogether. Verse 19, they have rejected the gospel. And here's one of the really interesting things about this word that's used as Paul is, and you think about Ephesus and, and, and this being a port city, and he's talking about being shipwrecked, that the apostle Paul, when he uses the word rejected in, in this passage, it literally means to throw overboard. So what, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that there's these leaders in the church that they have gotten the gospel and they've thrown it overboard. You see that he gives this image of being on a ship and he says, Paul, they, they went to the anchor and they cut the anchor off of the ship and they threw it overboard. Paul's saying, Timothy, what they did is they, they went below deck and they got the food and the supplies that they needed for the journey. The very thing that they needed to make it to the end and they threw it overboard. Paul says, and this is the imagery that, that even Reese pulled out last time. He's saying, hey, Paul, or hey, Timothy. So what they've done is they've gotten the map. The thing that's going to show them how to make it to the very end. How to make it to the final destination. And they've gotten the map and they've thrown it overboard. You see, Hymenaeus and Alexander, what they've done is they've been teaching these things that sound right, but they're not right. They've been teaching these false gospels. They've been teaching these words, these things that sound right, but aren't right. And in so doing, they have thrown the gospel overboard. They have thrown it overboard and they have lost the gospel and they're teaching a false gospel. Um, as I was reading through this and I was studying this, I, I remember just having this thought like, man, this sounds crazy. Like surely somebody in the church would like know Man, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're pre- preaching this craziness. Like, what kind of church is this? And I, I don't know when you hear those things if you're like, man, that would never happen in this church. Like, that would never happen here. Um, there are two warnings that Paul has for us from this text today as he's writing to young Timothy. Um, warning number one is this, is that this false gospel that was being preached in this church This unsound doctrine that was being spoken in this church, it didn't come through the back door of the church. It came through the front door. You see, it wasn't that this, this, this guy dressed up in a devil's mask and he came running in and he started speaking all this heresy and all this craziness and people were like, there he is. It's the devil and he's teaching all this crazy stuff. You see what it was? It wasn't that. What it was is it was somebody who walked through the front door of the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It was someone who shook the hands of every person who walked in. It was a person who gave the fist bumps when they walked in. It was the, I don't know if they did this in Ephesus, if the, you know, if they, if they did the little dap or not, but it was the person who every single week walked through the front doors of the church and they proclaimed a false gospel. You see, it didn't come in through the back door of the church. It came in through the front and the church had no idea. The second warning that the apostle Paul gives Timothy is this, is he says, Timothy, if this can happen to Hymenaeus and Alexander, if this can happen to them, Timothy, it can happen to you. And church, here's the warning that we have today. 
is that if the Apostle Paul knew that it could happen to Hymenaeus and Alexander, and if he believed that it could happen to young Timothy, who he had invested his entire life, work, and ministry into, then church, here's the reality, is that it can happen to you. And it can happen to me. You see, the Apostle Paul goes, hey, this false gospel, this unsound doctrine, it came into the life of the church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And people sat and they listened. And they heard it. They came in through the front door and they listened to it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Um, let me ask you, church, do you know what the false gospel sounds like? Do you know what this unsound doctrine sounds like? Because Paul tells us this is really important. He says, Timothy, you need to anchor your life to the real gospel. Because if you believe this false gospel, you will shipwreck your soul. Um, as I was thinking through uh, the text and what are these false gospels that we believe in the life of the church um, there were several things that were coming to mind, and I would say several things that we have even experienced since we've been back in America, since we have uh, been a, uh, not a part of several churches, but we've gone in and out of several churches. There are these false gospels that have crept into the life of the church that many people believe, that many people hang on to. Um, let me just give several examples. Um, the first one is this idea that if you are born a Christian, you are a Christian. If you are born into a Christian family, therefore, that will make you a Christian. Um, my family and I, I think many people know this, that uh, we lived in the Middle East for about seven years. And we were there as missionaries. Like the aim of us being there was to share the gospel, was to make disciples, and was to plant churches of Arab Muslims. We were in a totally Arab Muslim context, meaning that every single person that was around us um, identified as a Muslim. Uh, it was very rare to run into someone who didn't identify as that. And so, I mean, basically every person that we were around had never heard the name of Jesus before. And so... Um, so because we were there to share the gospel, that's what we would do. So, man, we would just go out and we would share the gospel. And we did that in a lot of different forms and a lot of different avenues and a lot of different ways. Um, but one of the ways that we would do that is, man, we would just go hit the streets. Like we would just walk out of our apartment and we would go down and we would share the gospel with somebody on the corner. We would go to a grocery store. We would go to the mall. And, man, we would just like talk to people about Jesus. And every once in a while, we would come across a person who identified as a Christian. So the way that it would work was we'd walk up to them and we would start talking to them about, um, we would start talking to them about Jesus and they would recognize, they would be like, oh man, I'm talking to a Christian. And so they would stop us in the middle of our conversation with them and they would be like, hey, are you a Christian? And we'd be like, yeah, we're Christians. And they would say, I'm a Christian too. And we're like, well, that's awesome. There's not many of you guys around here. And they're like, I know. And then we would ask the question, hey, what is it that makes you a Christian? And 99.9% .9 of the time, what they would do is they would pull their wallet out and they would pull out an ID card. In, in the Middle East, in almost every single country, every single people, they have these ID cards that the best way to think about it is like a driver's license combined with a, uh, with a birth certificate. Every single person has one. They carry it with them everywhere. And on this ID card, it says what religion they are. And so this person, they would pull out a card and they would say, look, my card says that I'm a Christian. 
And we're like, hey, that's awesome. Um, but why does it say that you're a Christian? And every single one of them would have this story that would go something like this. They would say, um, you see, my great-grandparents, they were Christians. And when they had kids, my grandparents, they were born into a Christian family, so therefore they're Christians. And then they would have kids, which were my parents, and they're Christians. And so naturally, when my parents had kids, whenever we were born, because we were born into a Christian family, we are Christians. They would hold up their ID and they would say, look, I'm a Christian. You see, I'm not a Muslim. And I'm not an atheist. And I'm not a Buddhist. And I'm not a Hindu. Therefore, I'm a Christian. And and we would have to walk them through that and say, hey, that's great that you identify as a Christian. But the problem with that is the Bible. That the Bible tells us that we are born as spiritual orphans without a spiritual father. That the Bible tells us that we are born dead in our sins and our trespasses. The Bible tells us that we are born not in like this neutral place with God where it's like, man, we'll sprinkle a little bit of church and we'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on it. And like we're good. The Bible tells us that we are born enemies of God, a heart that is at war against the living God of the universe. And church, we have churches that are full of people that claim this. They've, they've, they've believed this false gospel. They've held on to this thing. Well, man, I was born into a Christian family. Therefore, I'm a Christian. And it is contrary to the word of God is a false gospel that is trying to get into the life of the church. I work with university students all over the United States. And almost every single person that I talk to has the same story. Another false gospel that they believed. I talked with a lady last week, 75 years old. This is the story that she shared with me. And this is the story that I hear from all these people. I said, Pete, there was this time uh, when I went to a summer camp or I went to a, a church service and um, man, the, the music was incredible. The music was amazing. I mean, I just felt all these emotions. And then this guy got up and he shared these amazing stories. And the guy said at the end, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, all you have to do is walk the aisle, come down, pray a prayer, repeat these words after me, and you'll be born again. And so I did that. I walked the aisle. I repeated the words of this pastor, um, said all of these words, and I walked back. And everybody was so excited. Everybody was so excited for me. I'm like, I don't really know what happened. I'm not really sure if there was any kind of change or transformation. The next thing I know, I started going to youth group and, but you know, then sports kind of like picked up there in high school. So I stopped going to church and then I went off to college and well, everybody knows how college is, right? We, we all got, we all got our like little college stories. And so, you know, I stopped going to church and man, then I graduated from college and then I got married and I started having kids and I thought, well, you know, probably need to send my kids to open door school, to Christian school. And, and now I'm leading Sunday school in church. And man, honestly, here I am. And I'm, I've been going to church and I look back at my life at this thing where I prayed this prayer and I said these words. And yet the reality is, is that if I look at my heart and I look at my life, there's been no transformation. And I talked with a lady last week, 75 years old, who told me that she did it three times. And it wasn't until she was in her late 40s that she was truly converted when she believed the real gospel. People all around us go, Pete, I'm an American. I'm an American. I'm a conservative. I'm not like the crazy liberals who are down in Austin. Pete, I'm a Texan. I hold the door for people. 
I say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and our churches are full of people who are believing false gospels that they have been saved and converted. And the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, there are false gospels that are trying to get into the life of the church. And you have to hold on to the real gospel because these fake ones and these false ones and this unsound doctrine, it will shipwreck your soul if you believe them. The Apostle Paul comes to one of now, what is one of the most glorious passages in the Bible where he says, he says, Timothy, that the false gospel and unsound doctrine will shipwreck your soul. But in our very first and from verse 12 to uh, verse 17, Paul gives Timothy, he says, but the real gospel will save your soul. The false gospel and unsound doctrine, it will shipwreck your soul. But the real gospel, it will save your soul. There are um, three different things in this passage that I believe the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to young Timothy as to why it is that he should anchor his life to the real gospel. And these are three things that we're going to see. Number one is because the real gospel saves us. Number two is because the real gospel changes us. And number three is because the real gospel creates worship in us. And I'm going to walk through those three. This is why Paul charges Timothy to anchor his life to the real gospel. And I'm going to read this text one more time, and then we're going to walk through those things. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, but I received mercy. He says it again for the second time. You see, Paul tells Timothy to anchor his life to the gospel because it's the real gospel that saves us. What the apostle Paul does is he pulls Timothy back to this place where he reminds him, do you remember what the gospel does? Do you remember why Jesus came? Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the point that Jesus Christ came to get those who weren't like him, who were far from him. In fact, Jesus Christ came to save the foremost of sinners, the worst of them. And so what the apostle Paul does is he calls Timothy back to Acts chapter eight, Acts Acts chapter seven and Acts chapter eight, whenever. And this is the story, right? We all remember this. This is the story that Katie read. This is the story that three different times in the book of Acts that we see Paul's conversion. We see it in Acts 9. We see it in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 that he reminds Timothy. Timothy, do you remember who I was? That this was that as Stephen, the very first martyr in the history of the church as he was killed, the apostle Paul's going, hey, do you remember that I was there? That as we dragged Stephen outside of the city gates and his men picked up rocks and they were about to stone Stephen to death, that everyone looked at the Apostle Paul. Every single person looked at him and they said, Paul, if you give the thumbs up, we're going to execute him. If you give the thumbs down, he lives or maybe vice versa. But whichever way it is, 
Paul, the ultimate decision is up to you. And they look at the Apostle Paul and he gives the thumbs down and they execute Stephen. And he becomes the first martyr in the history of the church. And the Apostle Paul is trying to pull Timothy back to say, hey, do you remember who I was? Um, Here's the really interesting thing about this as well is that the Apostle Paul, like for most people, if they were to experience something like that, like if they were to see that happen to Stephen, it would probably like be like, man, I, maybe that was a little bit far. But, but we heard in our story today from Acts chapter 26 that the Apostle Paul, it actually did the opposite to him. That it poured fuel on his fire, that he went to the chief priest and he got a letter and he said, hey, not only do I want to keep doing that to Christians, I want to go to Damascus. Send me to Damascus and I'm going to kill more Christians. We're going to drag them to jail. We're going to take care of them. So the Apostle Paul gets a letter where he goes on a seven-day journey. That's how long it would take to get from where he was to Damascus. Seven days so that he could kill more Christians. And little did the Apostle Paul know that on his journey to Damascus, that the God of the universe would unleash divine grace and mercy on his life. And rescue him. The apostle Paul calls Timothy back. He goes, he goes, man, do you remember who I was? I was the foremost of sinners. Two of the three times when the apostle Paul is giving his testimony and he's saying, hey, do you remember that I was a killer of Christians? Do you remember that? Like, that's how far gone I was. Two of the three times that he shares his testimony, not only does he paint the picture of him being the persecutor, Paul the persecutor, he also paints a picture of him being Paul the religious zealot. He he said it in our text today that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That he was the the biggest law keeper in the world. He knew the law better than anyone. He kept the law better than anyone. He memorized the law better than anyone. And so you have this picture where you're like, okay, Paul, are you this like killer of Christians? Are you you the most self-righteous religious zealot on the planet? And he goes, yes, yes, I'm both of those things. And whether you're over here or whether you're over there or anywhere in between, it's the same end. Separation from God. Life Without Jesus, and Paul also makes the claim, and it's the same mercy. The same mercy and the same grace is offered to the foremost of sinners, regardless of where you're at on the spectrum. And it's the glory of the gospel. And this is the picture that we see in the gospel of Jesus coming to save sinners. And this is the story in John 4 of Jesus going to the woman at the well who's in Samaria. Right, we, we remember that story where Jesus is, he's sitting, he's at this well, and this woman comes up, and they start having this conversation about, about water, and, and, and she goes, hey, I, I need some water, and Jesus says, hey, um, why don't you call your husband, and he can come draw some water for you. And, uh, and so Jesus, uh, yeah, she, she says she needs water, she, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go call your husband, he can draw some water uh, for you, and she goes, well, I'm actually not married. And she goes, I know you're not married. In fact, you've been married five times. And the person who's living at your house right now, he ain't your husband either. And this woman who's never met Jesus before just kind of like steps back and staggers and goes, man, I, sir, I, I see that you're a prophet. I see that like you know certain things about me. And she goes, oh, I'm something so much more than that. I am something so much more than that. And, and, and this woman goes, wait, I've, I've heard that there's this Messiah I've heard that there's this rescuer. I've heard that there's this redeemer who's coming to save people from their sins. 
And Jesus says, the one who's standing before you is he. And this woman runs into the village and she says, come and meet this man who's told me everything that I've ever done. You see, Jesus doesn't run away from sinners. He runs towards sinners. This is the story of the leper in Mark chapter 1 where this man that he would yell out, unclean, I'm unclean. Everywhere that he went, he would let everybody know, don't come near me. And, and church, the, this is the reality of this story is that it is a picture, it is a physical picture of our spiritual reality that the leper in the story is us. And, G, and he comes running, this, this leper, he sees Jesus and he goes and he falls at his feet and he says, Jesus, if you will make me clean everything that I want from the depths of my soul, I just want you to heal me. And the God of the universe, perfect, righteous, spotless, lays his hand on the leper and he says, I will be clean. And he heals the leper. This is the story in John chapter 8. It's, man, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. love reading this. It's the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman. That these Pharisees, they, they find this woman who's been caught in an affair. And they bring her and they drag her before Jesus, these religious leaders. And, and they pull out their Old Testament and they go, um, Jesus, um, this woman who just got caught uh, in this adulterous relationship, um, the Old Testament says that we're supposed to stone this woman to death, that, that she deserves death. But what do you say, Jesus? And Jesus looks at these men and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And the men drop the rocks and they turn and they walk away. And the only thing that's left is Jesus and this woman who has just been caught in this heinous sin. And Jesus looks at this woman and he looks around and he says, where are your accusers? Where are those who have condemned you? Who's left to condemn you? And the woman goes, no one. And Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus didn't come to move away from sinners. He came to save them. He came to rescue them. Um, Dane Ortland, uh, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's absolutely incredible that he walks through Ephesians 2, which is the letter that, he, that, that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, the church that, uh, that Timothy is the pastor over. He walks through Ephesians 2 and he walks through our passage in 1 Timothy 1 and he makes a, different, a couple of different comments that I think that are helpful in regards to this text. He says, did you know that in the Bible, there's only one time that it says that God is rich in something? There's only one time in all of the scriptures where it says God is rich in something, that he is an unsurmountable amount of this thing. And it's in Ephesians 2 where he says that God is rich in mercy. He goes on to point out that not only does God have an insurmountable amount of mercy, he goes on to point out, the, and, and this is the picture that he paints, it's not that Jesus, it's not that God um, has mercy. It's not that he has this insurmountable amount of mercy. It's that he is mercy. In other words, the wrong picture when we think about ourselves and when we think about sinners is the, the wrong picture is to think about this Jesus, this God of the universe who has this huge pile of mercy next to him. 
And he gets his little mercy shovel and he like scoops it onto sinners every once in a while. That's the wrong picture. The picture that Dane Ortland says is that the picture is not that God has mercy. It's that God's heart is full of mercy. That he stands in front of sinners and unleashes mercy onto them. And this is why David in 1 Chronicles 17 says these words. That as he is recounting all of his sins, that he says that he was shown mercy and forgiven from the heart of God. In Exodus 33, uh, Moses is uh, the story where he goes, God, I just want to see your glory. God, I just want to see you. I want to be with you. I want you to come down and I want you to be in front of me. And the God of the universe says, okay, I'm going to show myself to you. And so Moses goes and hides himself in the cleft of the rock and the God of the universe comes down and he stands in front of Moses. And this is how God identifies himself whenever he stands in front of Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You see the two words that God uses to identify himself in front of a sinner. Moses is merciful and gracious. Paul is reminding Timothy, anchor your life to the gospel because Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And this is the reality for us. This is the gospel that in spite of our leprosy and in spite of our self-righteousness, in spite of our sin, that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we are called to live, knowing that we would live these crazy lives, knowing that we were sinners knowing that we couldn't do it, knowing that we couldn't figure it out, that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we are called to live, and he died the death that we deserve, and whoever would believe and repent and turn from their sins, they can be born again and they can be saved. It is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, anchor your life to the gospel, because it's only the gospel that saves us. Point number two of why it is that Paul is telling him to anchor his life in the gospel. He says, Timothy, anchor your life in the gospel because it's only the gospel that can change you. It's the gospel that saves us, but it's also the gospel that changes us. In verse 12, the apostle Paul says, uh, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though Formerly, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. The Apostle Paul is telling Timothy that this is who I was. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. I was a persecutor. But now God has judged me faithful. Timothy, trust the gospel. Anchor your life to the gospel because it's only the gospel that changes you. One of the things that has been um, a little bit confusing for my family and I since we, we moved back about a year and three months ago from the Middle East. One of the things that's been a little bit confusing for us since moving back to America has this idea of how it is that change affects a Christian. How it is one of the identifiers of someone who has been converted. And here's why. The context that we came out of in the Middle East is that as we were seeing Muslims who were walking away from Islam, 
as they were walking away from their families, as they were walking away from their communities, that every time that our team would baptize someone, someone who had converted to follow Jesus, they started to follow Jesus, and they were walking away from these other things, that every time that we would baptize someone, we would ask them the words before they were baptized, are you willing to die for Jesus? That's the question that we would ask. And if they said yes, we would baptize them. And if they said no, they wouldn't be baptized. Because we wanted to know, have you actually been changed by the gospel? And the reality is, is that we knew that many of them, what they were walking back into. Which is why we had two different guys who were martyred for their faith. You see, we had one guy who went back to his family. And and he walks into his house and he says, I want you to know, I'm following Jesus. I'm no longer a Muslim. And his cousin pulls out a gun and he shoots him right on the spot. Kills him right there. Um, Another guy who we asked that same question to before we baptized them said, are you willing to die for Jesus? He said, yes. Next thing we know, all the, the Islamic community is trying to get him to convert back to Islam. And when he won't do it, they see him and his son walking in the road one day. And a guy gets his truck and he runs over his kid and tries to kill him. It's only only by the grace of God that this kid didn't die. And when that didn't work, what they did is they went to his apartment building and they burned the entire building to the ground. Man lost everything that he owned. And so this is the context that we're coming out of. We're coming out of seeing real change in somebody's life. It's like nobody, whenever this dude got shot, nobody was like, hey, do you think that, that guy's a Christian? Nobody asked that question. Nobody was like, man, I don't know if this dude was real or not. I don't know if the spirit of God actually lived inside of him. Why? Because the change was real. Brother was willing to take a bullet for Jesus. And we came back to America where everybody, we have 40 churches in this town. And everybody claims to be a Christian. And it's been confusing to go, well, maybe... Maybe I want to say this kindly and gently and bluntly, and I believe this is from the word of God, church, that if you have not been changed by the gospel, you aren't saved. If the gospel hasn't changed you, if there's not evidence in your life that you have gone from something to something else, this new creation that we read about, you've not been saved. And not just that you can identify that in your life, but that other people see that in your life. Like if Craig Barnett can't go, hey, Pete, this is who you were and this is who you are now. This is the spirit of God living inside of you. Then then I need to be asking the question, man, have I actually been born again? And the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, anchor your life in the gospel because it's only the gospel that can change you. Last point and then we're done. Anchor your life in the gospel, not only because it saves you, not only because it changes you, but because the gospel creates worship in you. The Apostle Paul in verse 12 begins, he says, I thank him. I thank him. We get to verse 17. It's one of the greatest doxologies in all of the Bible. Where, where, where the Apostle Paul says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
The Apostle Paul, you can just hear it when you read this, that his heart is exploding with worship for the fact that Jesus saved him. One of the things that's really interesting about this text, um, do you know how many years it was from the time that the Apostle Paul was converted in Acts 9 till the time that he read this, or to the time that he wrote this for Timothy? It was almost 30 years. The Apostle Paul, 30 years after his conversion, is writing this. This is one of the reasons I love Paul so much is that he never recovered from the gospel. Like he never got over the fact that God saved him. Like when we, when he came in and sang the songs that we just sang, brother's heart was exploding with worship for Jesus. He never got over the fact that God saved him. And church, there are all these conversations right now about gospel-centered churches. And here's what I can tell you, and I believe this is from the text, that the most gospel-centered churches are the most most worshipful churches. That when they sing these songs about the gospel, they don't stand here like this. And I'm not saying it's got to be a crazy concert where everybody's bouncing over the seats and doing all the things. But I am saying that there is an emotional thing that happens in the life of a believer when they hear the gospel. When we sing these songs that it moves us. And church, it would terrify me that someone would walk into this church building and they would hear us sing these songs and say the words on this and go, these people are bored to death with this thing. Paul says, anchor your life to the gospel, Timothy, because the gospel creates worship in your heart. Anchor your life to the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that changes. It's the gospel that creates worship in us. Anchoring our lives to anything else will shipwreck our faith and it will shipwreck our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have called us. We thank you, Jesus, that you came for the foremost of sinners. That you did for us what we could never do. That you rescued us from death, from condemnation. Father, we pray that this gospel, that it would awaken our hearts to the reality of Jesus. That as we sing songs about the glories of Jesus, that our hearts would be awakened and moved. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.